Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been reading Paul's letter to the Galatian church together this fall. It's a letter that he wrote uh, because at some point after he founded the churches in Galatia and moved on, some other folks had come to those churches and told the young Christians there that they had uh, made a good start at following Jesus, but that there was more that they needed to do to grow in their faith. These people told them that if they wanted to really be acceptable to God, if they, they really wanted to mature in their faith, uh, then they needed to observe some parts of the law that are found in the Old Testament. And Paul wrote this letter because he was desperate for his friends to know that that is absolutely not true, and more than that, that if they did that, it would be like a spiritual slavery to them. So you'll hear that theme again as I read from Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20. I'll read that for us now, and you can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Galatians 4. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You, you know it was because of a, world, uh, a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang together about hearts that are dismayed, and we confess there are many of us here who feel that way. Another act of violence in a place of worship, bombs being sent through the mail, violence on the streets of our own city. And in response to all of this stuff, the normal encroachment of hardened positions and rhetoric, hatred and anger. Father, we confess all of this stuff is swirling around in our heads and it gives us pause, and so we ask that you would meet us with our hearts dismayed and lift up our heads. Show us your love and grace. Show us that you are in control of this world and that you love us. 
And Father, you know there are some of us here this morning who don't have the space in our lives to think about what's going on outside of our own life, in our own heart, our own house. We're dealing with incredibly intense things and difficult things and hard things on our own. And so meet us, too, those of us here this morning who are in that place. Show us your grace. Show us how much you love us in Jesus and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I remember uh, my dad teaching me how to mow the lawn. Uh, looking back now, I realized that he, he didn't really teach me how to mow the lawn like on one afternoon or on a particular Saturday morning. He showed me how to mow the lawn uh, over the course of many summers. Uh, we had a lot of grass to mow around the house that I grew up in, and my dad would use just a regular push mower to do all of the trimming, but for the wide open spaces, we didn't really have a traditional uh, riding lawn mower. My dad used this compact Gravely tractor uh, that his dad had bought in 1964, the year before his dad died. And my dad keeps that tractor in great uh, condition. It still runs today. But it is a formidable piece of machinery. It's not something a little boy could just hop onto and start using. So for a few summers before I was even old enough to try using it, my dad would take me out when it was time to mow the lawn. He'd show me how to make sure the mowing deck and the seat were hooked up to this tractor correctly. And he'd show me where and how we filled the gas tank. And he showed me how to choke it and how to start the engine and how to engage the blades. And, and then I'd sit on his lap while he mowed and he showed me how to control this thing. He showed me the best lines to take to make the lawn look good. And after a couple of summers, the day eventually came for me uh, to mow the lawn. It was my turn. Now, I was probably still uh, too young and small to use this thing. But that's how we rolled in the early 80s, you know. Parents were not as uh, attentive or whatever it is. But I didn't have any fear to get on that tractor. I couldn't wait to get on that tractor. And when I walked up to it, I just closed my eyes and I envisioned my dad and what he would do. And then I did it just like he would do it. I did everything just like my dad would. And that idea is at the heart of this part of the letter that we just read together. I know that it might seem hard to believe, but here in the middle of chapter 4 uh, is the very first place in this letter where Paul asks his friends in this church to do anything. Here we are in the middle of chapter 4. He has not made a single request of them. He has not uttered a single imperative to them. And now he does. I wonder if you heard it. It's in verse 12, and this is what he says to them. I entreat you, become as I am. Be like me. Do everything just like I would do it. Become like me. That is a powerful, powerful request. It could be incredibly egotistical, it could be incredibly dangerous, it could be incredibly manipulative, coming from the wrong person, but Paul had put in the time with these people. He was in it with them for the long haul. He was like their father. As he puts it in verse 19, he was like their mother, too. 
And so he could make theological arguments until he was blue in the face, and he, and he already has, and he will continue in the next passage. But here he stops, and he realizes that the one sure thing that he has to commend himself to them is his life with them. And I think that is, for you and me, a very challenging and very beautiful picture It is a call for you and I to live lives of humble, open-handed, vulnerable love and service to one another. So throughout chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4, Paul has been laying down one theological assault after another against the faulty teaching of the people who had come in after him, who had started to confuse and trouble his friends. Some of what he has written has been a little bit hot. All of it's been densely argued. All of it's been incredibly passionate. And if you've been with us, you know that one of the things that he has brought up a lot, by my count, at least five times, is that if they want to go back, if they want to follow the Old Testament laws they're being told to do, that it will be a form of spiritual slavery to them. And so in verse 8, he summarizes all of that with language that I think will land true, that I'm sure he thinks will land true with the lived experience of that little church in Galatia. This is what he writes. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. I mean, this this was so true. And I'm sure that it felt true to his friends in that church. They were not Jewish Christians like him. They were a group of people who had been raised just as fully pagan people. They had observed all kinds of capricious gods and all kinds of strange and abusive and often violent ways. They might even have been a part of the emperor cult that was growing in some parts of the eastern edge of the empire at that time. We don't know exactly. We don't know what kind of religion they practiced. We don't know exactly what kind of gods they served. But we don't need to know exactly to know that their spiritual lives were, at best, a treadmill of frantic, nervous service to entities they knew would never be satisfied. That was the nature of their spiritual life, of their religious life, if they had any of that kind of thing at all. Always working more to please this capricious God, to get them what they needed, knowing they'd have to keep it up and up and up. So then after they became Christians, they realized, of course, that they weren't really serving gods, but with Paul, they agreed. That didn't make it any less of a spiritual thing in their life. It was deeply spiritual. And they were spiritually enslaved. (laughs) And church, nothing about that experience has really changed at all. Because living life that way isn't particular to a particular people who lived in particular places in the first century. It is the common experience of all human beings everywhere because all human beings have been made to worship. It's hardwired into us, into the deepest part of our humanity, and there is nothing that we can do to turn this part of being human off. (laughs) As old uh, Bob Dylan said it, You might be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a string of pearls. 
They may call you doctor or they may call you chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And I think the late David Foster Wallace captured the existential slavery of that service incredibly well when he addressed a group of seniors, graduating college seniors in 2005. I want to read to you what he said about the fact that humans have to worship. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing up, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Church, that is all painfully true in my experience, and I probably don't need to guess that it's true in yours too. Because we move towards the things that we worship, and in turn, the things that we worship shape us and form us and mold us. And from front to back, from the beginning to the end, Scripture recognizes that this is true of human beings, and it says that the the only hope for people like you and me for real freedom, for true freedom in this world as humans, is to make sure that we're ordering our affections towards the right thing, that we are worshiping the right one. And this is what Paul says to his friends in verse 9, but now you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by him. I love how Paul corrects himself. It appears like he's correcting himself in mid-sentence. I love it because it highlights something beautiful. Obviously, our knowing of God is really, really important. Paul had given his life over to running around the known world, making sure that people had a chance to know God. And he didn't mean that as like intellectual assent. He meant that knowing as an intimacy of knowing, a relational knowing, a kind of fully realized knowing that humans are made for. But our ability to know like that rises and falls with all kinds of things, including our own waywardness, our own wandering and sinfulness. But church, God's knowing of us, it is full. It is perfect. It is complete. It does not wax and it does not wane. His full affection, his full order of love, his full attention is always set on us, and we are known fully and completely. And this is what the Galatians had experienced when they followed Jesus in faith. Through Jesus, they began to know God. 
And God, through the Spirit of His Son, knew them. And every day He was giving them this existential knowledge, this flesh and blood experience that they were part of the family. We talked about that last week. Paul said God sent the Spirit of His Son into their hearts to cry, Abba, Father. They knew they had been forgiven and they knew that they were made into family. As Pastor Tyler already said, there are few things that can be said of us that mean more than that we are the children of God. And you know what? They were finally free. They were finally free. Finally free to get off of that treadmill of anxious, nervous service to gods who were never really satisfied with them. They knew that they were known. They knew that they were loved now by the God of all things. I love that little line from Eugene Peterson that was our reflection uh, at the beginning of the order of worship. This is what he says. He says, all persons of faith I know are sinners and doubters and uneven performers. (laughs) We are secure not because we are sure of ourselves, but because we trust that God is sure of us. (laughs) He is sure of us. And that's what it sounds like to be free. And what was true of that little church is true of us too. When we follow Jesus by faith, when we worship the right one, we are fully known and we are fully loved and we are set into a family and we are finally, finally free. Free to be the humans that we were meant to be. Free to live lives of love and service in this world. Free to stop looking for life from things that can never give us life. Free to stop using people to give us what only Jesus can give us. And free to actually start loving and serving those people with open hands. We're free. So it is worth all of us just stopping for a moment and asking, am I worshiping the right one? Am I worshiping the right one? Is it Jesus who is shaping and molding me into who I am becoming? Or is it a bunch of lesser things that have no power at all to change me, but a lot of power to suck the life out of me and to keep me on my nervous, frantic treadmill? Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we will worship. And church, God's people have found it to be unfailingly, unfalteringly true when we set our affection on Jesus, when we direct our worship towards Jesus, then all of the lesser good things fall into place in our lives and all of the lesser harmful things begin to fade away and lose their power over us. Church, that is the freedom that you and I have been made for. So Paul's question to his friends in verse 9, it makes sense to us too. Why? Why would you ever want to turn back to to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Why would you want to be enslaved to those things again? 
He feels so desperate. He says, I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain. And then something happens. It's as if his memory of his life together with them has triggered his deep affection for them again. You can, you can hear it. You can see it. All of the parental concern floods into him. And the theological argument goes on pause. And he writes the first deeply personal, deeply intimate request in this letter. I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. It's a simple request. He can offer his life to them. Be like me. I showed you how to live the Christian life. Patiently, kindly, closely, joyfully, I showed you how to live as followers of Jesus. So just close your eyes if you have to and envision me. Do what I would do. Live by faith alone in Jesus and you will be fine and you will be free. I mean, there's no way. There's no way he could have ever appealed to them so intimately and so personally if he hadn't really given his life to them when he was with them. That's what he means when he says, I have also become as you are. He wasn't some traveling celebrity preacher. He was their pastor. He was not aloof. He was one of them. He lived with them. He reminds them that he had come to them first because of a bodily ailment. It's a mystery what that was. Some people think that maybe he was fresh off of one of the many beatings he took at the hands of his enemies or at the hands of the empire. Some people think maybe it was an illness or a long-term disease that had flared up. Some people think he had eye trouble because he says in verse 15 that they would have given him their own eyes if they could have. We, we can't possibly know what it was. But we can know that it was a big deal, whatever it was, because Paul says, my condition was a trial to you. But they didn't scorn him. They didn't despise him when he came. It's the opposite, in fact. Paul says, you, you receive me like I was an angel of God. No, you receive me like I was Christ Jesus himself. And out of that odd and troublesome and difficult beginning, the sickness of the body... Paul and his friends at Galatia had become family. He describes their life together as blessedness. And then he says, what has become of that blessedness? Have I become your enemy just by telling you the truth? And then for just the second time in this letter, Paul refers to whoever it was who had come in after him. It's very telling. Very telling how he describes them. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. 
They're making a big deal about the Galatians, but it is for a selfish purpose. They want to be made much of themselves. Hmm. They're nervously running on their own frantic treadmill. They want something from you. They need you to affirm them so they can feel whatever it is they need to feel about themselves, so they can get approval from whoever it is they want to get approval from. They're taking from you. They want you to make much of them. They're taking from you. It stands in such sharp contrast to the life of self-giving love that the Galatians had shown to Paul when he showed up and that Paul, in turn, had showed to them. That's the kind of relationships, church, that we're made for. Relationships that seek the good and the flourishing of the other before our own. But if we're worshiping the wrong thing, then we're not free to love other people like that because we need them. We need them to fill up these bottomless holes that our weak non-gods dig into our souls. Make much of me. That's what we say when we're not free. Make much of me. Tell me I'm pretty. Tell me I'm smart. Tell me I'm successful. Tell me I'm alluring. Tell me I'm powerful. Tell me I'm good. Tell me I matter. Make much of me. And if you can't or you won't, I'm finished with you. That's what we say when we're not free. Even if we don't say it, that's how we live. And this is, this is Paul's whole, whole point. <laughs> you know God. And more importantly than that, you are known by him. You have been set into this family by faith in Jesus. You have the Spirit telling you every day that you are the children of God, that you can call him Father, just like he calls you daughter, just like he calls you son. You are free, free in the most thoroughgoing, fullest way that a human can be free. So you don't need to use people. You're free to love them with open hands. That's the life Paul wants for his friends. That's the life he wants for us as the church. So he says he's like a mom in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. Because knowing the grace of Christ and experiencing the grace of Christ by faith is enough. And it will always be enough to change us into the people that we were created to be. People in whom Christ is being formed. People who are learning to live and to love like him. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to believe that all of this is absolutely positively true. that we are the freest that we can possibly be if we follow Jesus in faith. That we are known and loved and set into a family, that we are secure, that we are safe. Father, help us to believe that that is absolutely unequivocally true so that we can be healed, so that we can learn to love as we have been loved. Father, do that for our good. 
and do that for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.